All right, let's take our Bibles out. Let's begin our reading in John chapter 1 and beginning in verse 6. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me because He was before Me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. When I first went to Bible college, I, I had been out of school for about seven years. Um, so when I went, it was a little bit intimidating to me, and I, I didn't get there with much time to spare. Lisa and I were trying to decide, well, do we go now? Do we wait a year and kind of get our ducks in a row? We came to the conclusion after about a week of prayer and thoughtfulness and searching God's Word for principles that would apply that we should go now. And so I called the school and said, well, how late can I get there? And they said, you can't get here late at all. You're a freshman. You have to be here for all the orientation things and stuff. And so you have to be here by like Friday. I think it was like coming right up. I can't remember if it was the end of that week or the next. And so we put everything in a big yard sale in the backyard and, and everything pretty much sold in a day. Lisa was pregnant with Zach, her and I and Tim and Dan got on a Greyhound bus in downtown Seattle headed for Owatonna, Minnesota. So I hit there and I had to kind of hit the ground running. So we get there with just basically a few suitcases and stuff. We stayed in the guest dorms for a little bit till we could get uh, time to find an apartment. And so she was staying over in the guest dorms, and, and uh, I was up at the main building trying to get signed up for classes, which I didn't have a clue how to do. And I found that I kept getting in the wrong line. And the lines were long, and so it took a while to get through the line, only to be told, oh, you're in the wrong line. You need to go over there. And then I'd go over there, and, well, you don't have what you need yet. You need to go back to the room. And, and I had my paperwork, but it's back in the room. So Lisa's digging through files back in the room. I just got told one more time I was in the wrong line. And so I step out of there, and I'm just frustrated. And I turn, I'm walking down the hall, and the president of the college walks by. And he says, how are you doing? And I said, not well at all. <laughs> and he's like, what's, what's the matter? I said, you know, I said, I don't even know what line to get in. I said, I keep standing in line to be told I'm in the wrong line and I, I got to put together a class schedule. I don't even know how many hours somebody goes to school in a, in a quarter of college. I don't know what to put down. I don't know what classes I'm supposed to take. I, I've been in school for seven years. I've been working construction. He says, come with me. And here the president of the college takes me in his office, sits down, fills out my schedule, fills out my paperwork, hands it to me, walks me back out in the hallway, says, get in this line right here. He didn't even just help me. He just did it. I was so thankful for that guy. Well, I was thinking about him again this week. You know, I've been told by people that when people get doctorates behind their name, they become kind of very important people and don't have time for you, little ones. This guy had a doctorate behind his name, and he just took time out of his day and made my life a whole lot easier. And I thought, what a great guy. Well, I thought about him again this week, because as we look at this passage, that's what we're dealing with. 
Jesus came to our rescue. He came to our aid. And He didn't just come to help us. He came to do it. And He came and did all the work that was needful to provide for our salvation. As He went to the cross and completed. In fact, as He hangs on the cross, He's going he's to say, it is finished. This passage that we looked at last week, saying, look at Christ. Who is Christ? He's God in the flesh. We looked at the deity of Christ. Well, now we're going to come back to the same passage, or at least a portion of it. And there's another emphasis within there as well, that Christ is God, but He is in the flesh. He's, in other words, He's not only do we see the deity of Christ, we also see what, what we call the incarnation of Christ. Incarnation means that He took on flesh, that He became a man, that He was God. He existed in all eternity as God, but He becomes a man. He takes on flesh. He is incarnated. If last week we looked at the deity of Christ, basically through the incarnation, we look at the humanity of Christ. And there are several things in this passage that point to this incarnation. Different phrases that come out. In verse 14, we'll find a few of them. It says He became flesh. It also says in verse 14 that He dwelt among us. It says we have seen, that we have seen Him. In other words, He's right there. He's in physical form, not just in spirit. But He is was existing in front of them. He became flesh. He's dwelling among them. And then it also it says that He was coming into the world. In verse 9. In verse 11, it says He came to His own. In verse 4, it talks about Him being the light. It mentions it quite a bit of times in a few passages. And actually we pointed to that last week as a, as a sign of His deity because He is the light of the world. And that's an astonishing statement for a person to make. But, no, but notice also it says that He is the light of men. In other words, He was here shining that light for us. And so He was incarnated. He took on flesh. And then lastly, it says the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. You know, it reminds me of when it's talked about Galilee. It says those who sat in darkness would see a great light. In all these different ways, we see it indicated that Christ was incarnated, that He was taken upon flesh. All the way back from the beginning, He was God. But at one point in history, at one time, He became a man. Well, what does that mean? If we put it simply, the invisible became visible. The spiritual became physical. The infinite became finite. The eternal became temporal. And the Creator of the world stepped into His own creation. That's an amazing concept. He took on a mortal body. He took on a physical, mortal body. And He would die. He who is all-powerful would experience weakness. And you know what's awesome of that? If you go read like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, later in the chapter, it's like an undoing of all of this. But for us, the Bible says that through the resurrection of the dead and because of Christ's resurrection from the dead, our mortality will take on immortality. Our weakness will become strength. Our temporariness will become eternal. And so it's through Christ and His becoming a man, His taking on human flesh, that He is able to die to pay our price. We sacrificed millions of lambs down over the years, but they were only a picture. Why? Because a, a, a lamb or a bull or a goat, the blood of one of those can't pay for a person's sins. A human being is a very different creature than an, than an animal. And so God allowed for a time, even commanded for a time, a sacrifice of these animals. Why? Because they would picture the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. But as we looked at last week and we recognized that we're going to need something more than a man to die for us because he had to be pure. 
And so we see Christ, the Son of God, but he had to, at the same time, be a man, and he took on flesh. And so we see the incarnation of Christ. Now, as, as we look down through this passage, it kind of breaks into two different aspects or two things we're going to look at as far as the incarnation of Christ. The first one is the revelation. How it is revealed to us that the Son of God would become the Son of Man. And we see the first thing that is focused on by John, and he uses the word repeatedly, is the word light. And so he illuminated. He is the light of the world. Light is a pretty major theme through the Bible. Light was the first of God's creative works that he describes in Genesis chapter 1. And he said, let there be light. Light signified the presence of God over the tabernacle, over the tent. There would be a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud in the day. And so light, that pillar of fire, would signify the presence of God. In that, when Jesus would say, I am the light of the world, that's a big part of what he's, a, what he's alluding to. He's, he, is, he was the presence of God in the world at that time. And this is just scratching the surface. There's other things too, like, like Moses. Actually, when he goes up onto the mountain, the mountain is covered in darkness. A cloud comes down over it, and there's thunder and lightning and stuff, and there's darkness. But Moses goes up into the presence of God, and when Moses comes down off the mountain, he's radiating the glory of God. And you know what? The Bible actually in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, tells us that that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to behold Him. And as we do, as we behold Him through His Word, that we are changed from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. It uses that example of Moses coming down off the mountain after being in the presence of God and radiating His glory. And it says, you know what? That's what our Christian growth is. We need to be in the presence of God through His Word, beholding Christ, and we will radiate His glory to this very dark world. And so we see it signifying the presence of God. Not only that, light is the character of God. In, in 1 John chapter 1, he says, In Him was light, and in Him is no darkness at all. Uh, not only that, but light is to be how the, the Christian, how the child of God then walks. If God is light, then it only makes sense that we walk in light. Because He is light, if we say that we know Him, but we walk in darkness, then we're lying and we're not living, we're not living out the truth. And so it's to be the way that the, the Christian walks. You know, Jesus would make the claims that He is the light of the world while He ministered among us. But then He would also turn to the disciples at different points and say, you're the light of the world. And He says, you know what? Nobody lights a candle and puts it under a bushel. So don't go hiding yourself from the world. Get out there and light it up. Well, light is, as you get toward the end of the story and look toward the conclusion, we see that light is going to be absent with the fall of Babylon. When you get to the latter parts of Revelation, mid to latter, you find a big city. And the big city is Babylon. It's a real city, but it's also symbolic of the world system. The world without God. And the world that's going to be dominated by the Antichrist. And when Babylon falls, there's going to be a judgment and it's going to be darkness. There's going to be no light in the city. It's kind of like with Pharaoh. Remember with Pharaoh when Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt? The ninth plague, the one right before the death of the firstborn, the ninth plague was darkness in the land of Egypt for three days. When Christ dies on the cross, we have darkness for three hours. What is it? The absence of light, absence of God. Darkness over Egypt. Darkness when the life of Christ is taken. Darkness when the world system finally, Babylon finally falls. And the reason that that's so important to bring up is because right after the fall of Babylon, you're going to have the new heavens and the new earth. And the city on the new earth is the new Jerusalem. And you know what you find when you read in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation? It says, no sun. Because God Himself will light the new city. 
when you get to the New Jerusalem, Babylon falls and in its judgment, where is the absence of God, the absence of light, it's dark. And the New Jerusalem arises and it doesn't need this new creation, doesn't need a sun, doesn't need a moon. It'll be light there perpetually because of the presence of God. Christ, when He became a man, He is the presence of God in this world. He shines, radiated the glory of God for us to behold. And that's what He begins by revealing to us is that light. Well, second, we also find that He entered. It says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. In verse 9 and verse 10, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. He was coming into the world. He was coming to His own people. So the first one, obviously, very broad. The whole world reaching to everybody. The second one, more narrowed, talking about the Jewish people. The salvation is of the Jews. And it would come through the Jewish people. Because it was a fulfillment to the promises given to Abraham and then to Isaac and Jacob and then to David as well. And so we see Him him coming Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Notice what was the end goal. The end goal is that we would receive adoption as sons. What is the end goal in John chapter 1? That we believe in that makes us children of God. Same exact end goal. How do we get there? We get there through Christ coming to us. We can't reach up to Him. He has to come down to us. Typically, in every other religion and pretty much in the world, it's about God is up there and we are going to get to God through these things that we do. Through these good works, through these sacraments, through these rituals. We're going to get to God through those. That is not Christianity. Christianity is not me getting to God. Christianity is God coming to me because I couldn't get to God. You see, in order to get to God, you'd have to fulfill the law completely and I blew it. Before I could even speak, I blew it. It's about God coming to us. It's about Him entering our world, Him taking upon our sin, and Him conquering our enemy to give us life in place of our death, to give us justification in the place of our judgment. That's what Christianity is. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 6-8, through it says, speaking about Christ, who though He was in the form of God, so there's the deity of Christ, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Well, we talk a lot about the sacrifice of the cross, and that should be where we spend most of our conversation. But you know, just the sacrifice that it must have been just for Him to come here. I mean, think about Him in in fellowship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit from all eternity past, and in the splendors and the glories of heaven where there is no sin and there is no discomfort. It says that He didn't count that as something to be grasped. In other words, he didn't, he didn't cling to it. He willingly let it go, which meant He had to empty Himself. And He did it for us. He came to us. Hebrews talks about the importance of that in chapter 2, verse 14. says, Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. In verses 17 and 18, it says, Therefore He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. You see, He didn't show up as a 33-year-old man ready for the cross. He showed up as a baby. 
And if you can imagine, wrap your mind around the idea like we try to every Christmas, the God, the Creator of the world, needing His diaper changed or needing to be fed in order to survive, dependent on others. But that's exactly what He did. And for 33 years, He walked in our shoes. He faced our struggles and temptations. He felt our pains and disappointments. And so that when He came to that cross, He could adequately represent God because He is God. He could adequately represent us because He is us. When we say He entered this world, that's a loaded comment, right? That has a lot of depth. Because He didn't just take on my sin. And He didn't just take on your sin. When He died on the cross, He was dying not for the sin of one person, but for the sins of the world. And that's pretty amazing. So He entered. He illuminated. He entered. The other word that He uses is He dwelt. He dwelt among us. Now, the word dwelling there is actually the word often translated tabernacle. Jesus Christ, He came and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. It's a very clear picture of the Old Testament with the Israelites out in the wilderness. The Israelites get rescued out of Egypt. They get saved and brought out into the wilderness. And God's going to dwell with them. And for 40 years, they're going to live in tents. And God has Moses arrange them so that they're going to live by their different tribes. The tribes set up all around. And right in the middle of everything is one big tent. And you know what it is? It's the tabernacle. It's God's tent. God is camping out with the Israelites. Now later, when they get in a place that's permanent, David's going to look and say, you know what? I have a palace. I live in a palace of cedars. God's still living in that tent. We need to make it permanent. We need a bigger building, a nicer place for God. And God's going to tell him, you're not building my house, I'm building yours. But I'll tell you what, your son can build the building that you're talking about. And so God, again, now in a more permanent fixture, would be not the tabernacle, but the temple would be in that place. And that would signify the presence of God right in the city of Jerusalem. Well, you know what? In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, it says, talking about the tabernacle and the priesthood and all those things, it says they serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. This thing is supposed to be a representation of something greater. But when Christ would come, He would be the real thing. You see, because what was the tabernacle? The tabernacle was God dwelling in the midst of His people, dwelling among them. And when it gets to Jesus, it uses the exact same word in saying He he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. This was God living with us. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 6, Jesus would tell him, I'll tell you something greater than the temple is here. John chapter 2, we're going to find, the Jews are going to say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are going to take him very literally and say it took us 46 years to rebuild this thing. You're going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus wasn't talking about that that temple. He's talking about His temple. That He is the temple in that situation. He is the presence of God in their in their midst. In fact, they're going to throw that back in His face when He's on the cross. They're going to say, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. You know what? All they had to do was wait the three days that He talked about. And they could see it themselves. Well, in Revelation 21, it also says in the New Jerusalem, there's not going to be any tabernacle or temple because God will be living amongst us. We won't need the building because the actual presence of God. You know, when Solomon built the temple, when he dedicated the temple, he said in his prayer before God, he said, God, the heavens of heavens cannot contain you. 
And so we're kidding ourselves if we really think that this building is going to contain you. But please, let it be a representation of your presence. And when we cry out to you in this place, hear us. There's no building that you can build that can contain God. But it was to symbolize something very important. God's presence among them. Now, what is the temple? What is the tabernacle today? We can see what it has been. That it was the tent and then the building. And then it was Christ while He dwelt with us. But then Christ has ascended up into heaven. We know that when the New Jerusalem is built, we're not going to need the temple. What is that presence of God today? And you know what it is? It's two different things. It is you as an individual Christian. And it is us collectively as a church. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18-22, through 22, it says, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So notice he's talking about the Christians collectively. He's talking about the church. But he says, you know what's happening? You guys are all being built together into a holy temple under the Lord. We are, us collectively, are the presence of God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's why also in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he warns them concerning that truth. You see, if you look back in chapters 1 and 2, you'll find that there's some division that's taking place. They're not really growing together. They're making divisions and separating. And mostly over foolish things. Some people are saying, look, I follow Paul. The other one says, oh, my, my favorite's Apollos. I'd rather listen to Peter. I'd rather... Acting like these were people with differences. And the Apostle Paul says, look, who, who are we? We're just servants. And this is what he says to him. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's Spirit dwells in you? Not individually, but collectively at this point. God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, that's what they were doing through their factiousness and their disunity. Now, there are things, times when God absolutely calls us to make separations, but they were doing it over personalities and stupid things. And he's saying, look, you are tearing apart the church. You're tearing apart the temple of God. And God says, you, you destroy the temple. I'm going to destroy you. God says, that's my dwelling place. I'm not going to let you come in and wreck my home, wreck my house. And so he says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. But then not only are we the temple of God collectively, but we are also the temple of God individually. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one in spirit with Him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immoral person sins against his own body. So obviously he spends quite a bit of time talking about sexual immorality and sinning in that way. Now, here's the rub. Here's, Here's why. Why is this such a big deal? Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You see, even our physical bodies are important. Why? Well, part of the reason is because they house the Spirit of God. Us collectively, our God dwells within us collectively as a church. God also dwells within each of us individually. 
If you have a question about what kind of things you should participate in or not participate in, this one understanding should clear up a lot for you. Your very body houses the Holy Spirit. You are the dwelling place for God. And so if it's inappropriate for that, then it is inappropriate for you. And why are we the dwelling place of God? Well, it's because Jesus came. And He was the dwelling place of God. And He laid down His life for us so that we could be the next temple. Lastly, we see the response. And the responses fall into basically two categories, but with a a little bit of nuance on the first one. It says that He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. The first response is that He remains unknown. That's a real insight into the depravity of man if you think about it. When you think back to world history, the time of Adam and Eve in the garden, every person in the world knew about God. After the flood, every person in the world knew about God. How is it that we can go from knowing God to not knowing God so fast? You know how long it usually takes? About a generation. In fact, even within the chosen people of God, you realize when Moses led the people of Israel out into the wilderness and through the wilderness for 40 years, and then Joshua takes over going into the promised land, they go in and conquer the promised land. And then the Bible says that during the days of Joshua, the life of Joshua, and all of the guys his age that were leading with him, Israel did well. But then there arose a generation that did not know God. How does that happen in one generation? That we go from a group of people that has actually seen the things that God did to a group that doesn't recall them, doesn't remember them, doesn't think about them, doesn't know God at all. That is the extent of the sinfulness of mankind, I guess. But at any rate, he says, you know what? He came to the whole world. And the whole world, though they have their gods, but their gods they fashion. You see, we were made to bear the image of God, to, to be a mirror of God in this world. But you know what mankind does? Mankind decides, you know what? Don't want that God. And mankind very quickly begins to reshape God and reshape Him into our image. Rather than us going into His image, we begin to reshape Him into our image. And then things get real ugly. But through their different beliefs and their different perspectives and things like that, they begin to change or try to distort who God is. And He remains unknown. What are factors that lead to Him remaining unknown? Well, I think the biggest one's a hard heart. I think a lot of it also comes to distractions. You know, a lot of people in the world... They just don't really have any time for considering God or who He is or what He's like or what He requires. They're busy with jobs, which are good things. They're busy with families, maybe. They're busy with hobbies. They're busy with, you know what you can say they're busy with and then add pretty much anything after that. And anything that gets in your way of knowing God is your idol, is your other God. And so for a large part of the world, Jesus came to the world and He remained unknown. But then not only was he unknown, he was unwelcomed. It says he came to his own. That would be be the Jewish people. He came to his own. Can you imagine arriving home and the door being locked to you? That's what happened to Jesus. And I find it astounding. You know, as we look through the Gospel of John, the whole book, it's amazing. And the other Gospels too. But when you look through them, you find that here's this guy that he makes blind people see, lame people walk. He can calm a storm. He can feed thousands of people with one boy's lunch. He can uh, walk on the water. He would cleanse lepers from their leprosy. He, he would 
perform all kinds of miracles. And most, most of them having to do with health and healing. He would cast demons out of people too. And all these different things, which every one of those things makes society better. Makes it a nicer place to live. There were even several occasions where he raised the dead. And the response of the people was, we've got to get rid of that guy. It makes no sense whatsoever. But that's what he came to his own and his own. He was unwelcome. He remained unknown and he was unwelcome. The very people that should have been leading the way in falling down and worshiping him, he was unwelcome. But lastly, he was believed. He was believed. And this is the target that John is aiming for through his whole gospel. That you and I would simply believe. Why? Because in believing, there is life. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God.